You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. So creativity has always been a wonderful outlet for me, like drawing or writing or playing music, like all of these different mediums of art had been coping mechanisms for me my entire life. So when you work in a creative agency, <laughs> in a creative role, and you are told by your higher up that you cannot express your creativity in these certain ways, it subconsciously reads as I can't utilize the coping mechanisms that benefit me the most. I can only utilize the ones that line up exactly with my role. All right. Welcome to the boost conversations with people promoting mental health. And I am here, as you can see with Johnny Crowder, from Cope Notes and from the band Prison and his TED Talks and all the things that he does. I don't know how he has any spare time, but Johnny, it's wonderful to talk with you today. I can't wait to get into it. How are you doing? How am I doing? I always try to answer this really honestly and transparently. I am a little not present because I'm moving this weekend and I'm like pre-packing my stuff in boxes in my head. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like yes. prepping for a move where you're like, okay, I'll put these books into this box, but that box can't be too heavy because last time I moved those books, the bottom blew out of the box. Um, so it's been kind of challenging for me to just sit and be present and focus on one thing. But I will do that for this interview. I promise you have my oh, That's so nice of you. We can live with your um, with the boxes in your head too. Um, <laughs> Is that is that a pattern that repeats itself? Some people say the way you make one decision is the way you make every decision. So is that something you do in your work life and in other ways, or is it is it just this moving issue? I tend to be a very analytical thinker, and I tend to consider a lot of options or ramifications of decisions. So I think there's this. Um, trope that entrepreneurs are very they love taking risks they're risk takers i consider myself to be fairly risk averse i just make one big bet every few years and i put two years or three years worth of thought into that big bet so sometimes i accidentally put that much thought into small things like packing for a move mm -hmm. yes that's one of the i think the one of the beauties of humans and that's what separates us a little bit is that ability to play chess and the next five bounces of the ball you know we can play those games out in our head without having to endure the consequence other than what we perceive the consequence to be as much as we can see and nobody knows the future but that's interesting so you're you're making you're making occasional big bets and i would agree with you like the the entrepreneurs i talk to are are oftentimes risk averse. And then it's about how do I mitigate 
as much risk as possible or minimize as much risk as possible, knowing that I need to take some risk in order to make something happen with reward. Yeah. Is it, is it Charlie Munger? I think it was him who said the number one rule of investing is don't lose money. And then the number two rule of investing is see rule number one. I think it was him who said that. And it's so funny to think of someone who um, is considered to be so widely successful in his career as basically playing defense almost the entire time. Yeah. It's, and it's not, it's not always chess. Uh, You know, it's like, it's like most of the math you need to be good in the stock market is like what you get in the fourth grade. It's about, he also says it's about avoid, it's either him or Buffett. I, I forget, but it's like avoiding toxic people and behaviors is like one of the big secrets to being successful or to amassing wealth or money, whatever it is. Yeah, I think about, I just heard this interview with this guy who was summarizing some of Charlie Munger's most um, common refrains that he would use in business. And one of them was, Charlie Munger would regularly say, like, that's too hard, or that's too complicated, or I don't get that. And he had no shame in being like, there are too many moving parts, that's complex, I don't fully understand it, I don't want to touch it. And I think all of us, especially entrepreneurs, people who are building brands, need to consider like, hey, you don't have to puff up and pretend like you understand everything. In fact, if you don't get it, then maybe don't do it mm. right now. Like, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of humility in saying, I'm not going to move forward until I fully understand what this is. And if I never fully understand it, then I don't want to take that big of a bite, you know? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, w- yes. I mean, a couple of things there jump out to me. Um, one is that, uh, you know, quote unquote, successful people, if you're using a metric of, let's say, um, career freedom or money amassed. There's lots of ways to define it, but if we define it kind of the way that maybe, you know, the ink magazine might define it. Um, it's not always about the inventor. Uh, in fact, I don't know a lot of like wealthy inventors, you know, um, once in a while. Um, but it's really, that's sort of upstream in the science of it. And there's such exciting things to do, but then it's activating that science through technology, but then it's activating that technology into a user experience that solves a problem. And that's where it's hard, but you don't have to be a genius to solve somebody else's problem. And it's actually probably something that we overlook quite a bit as the most valuable piece in the food chain. Um, which, yeah, there's some things I want to circle back to that we were talking about ahead of time uh, in, in terms of food chain and capitalism. But, uh, yeah, you don't have to be the smartest kid in class, but you, you do have to solve problems. Yeah, that's a relief, honestly. Like, at the same time that I think that you really should understand what you're getting yourself into before you start something, I also fully understand from firsthand experience that nobody has any idea what they're getting themselves into when they start something. So there's this balance. I oscillate between this is too complex and too many moving parts, too many variables. I don't want to touch it to, I know this is really important and I'll have to learn some of this along the way, because if I don't do it now, I'll miss an opportunity to make an impact that I know I'm supposed to make. Yeah. It's even one of the the prompts that you have on the cope notes website. Like this is front page stuff, but it's like, um, 
a mindset that everything is going to be okay doesn't mean it's all going to be perfect for you. It means that we have this adaptability to respond to challenges. And when life hands us a move, it's like, yeah, we can actually solve for it. Um, and from an entrepreneurial standpoint, or maybe an age standpoint, I can't, I can't classify this as like a universal truth, but just in my life, in my early mid forties, having spent some time in the game, making a lot of mistakes, there's something now to be said for uh, starting a business or not starting a business, but starting my entrepreneurial path in the, what I call in the wild, sort of like, I feel like I'm in the wild and there is a, there's a hunger or a responsiveness or a focus or something come, comes from being in the wild. Um, it can also break you, um, but it can also simply bend you and decisions like that get made because there's no other alternative. I was thinking about, um, I did a panel in front of a bunch of college entrepreneurs and they were asking like, uh, your best advice or my best advice for young entrepreneurs. And I said, you probably won't like this and please don't film it. And I completely understand if I'm never invited back to speak at this organization ever again, because of what I say here, I said, if you can get a regular job and close your computer at 5 p.m. every day and have nights and weekends all to yourself and you just have your work over here and the rest of your life over there and you can have health insurance and a 401k and relative security and peace, do it. You would be absurd to not take advantage of that. That's a great life and a lot of people have it. There's this weird poo-pooing of traditional means of like career paths in the entrepreneurship world that I just have never understood. I think it's, I have many friends who are doing that and are very happy. I said, you only start a business if you can't do that. Like Steve, I'm telling you, I could not get hired for the life of me. And the jobs that I did have, the times that I did get hired, I was not a good employee because I was always doing stuff outside of my job description. Like I remember I worked at an agency, an ad agency, and I was a copywriter. And I was constantly suggesting uh, commercial themes and design language and um, themed menus for events that I was writing the invitation for. And my boss always had to tell me, like, stop, stop it. You're doing way too much. Just do what we tell you to do. And I just am not wired that way. So I was telling this group of college entrepreneurs, like, if there's any part of you that can do a regular thing, go do it. Because entrepreneurship, the only way I think you can actually stick with it is if in some way the the ships have been burned metaphorically. You're like, I can't just bail right now and get a normal job because I tried that and it didn't work. So I have to stick with it. Yeah. Um. I knew, I knew this is how I thought this is how this conversation would go, which is just, uh, Wimbledon tennis. It's just absolute back and forth. I mean, there's so much there that you're serving up. Um, you know, I think, uh, to extent you're a copywriter too, aren't you, Steve? I can smell. I love words. I love words. My, uh, my first job was a first quote unquote job was, a a copy editor or a writer for a, like a weekly rag of a newspaper in Northern California. 
and I was doing sports. And then one day on a Monday, we get a call that the editor of the paper has been arrested multiple states away for a very old charge in his history. And so that's how I got my first promotion. And I loved to write. I love words. I love tinkering. I love overthinking and tweaking words. But I'm also, a, I've been a terrible employee. I, um, I pursued sort of this path of sales, thinking that was coming from my history of like a, a, like a pastor's kid, you know, like not rolling in dough and not a lot of business acumen floating around the house. It was like, well, I, you know, sales seems like to move from the copy editor role to a sales job makes a lot of sense. And then I just tried to fit a round <laughs> peg in a square hole for like decades, you oh, know, man. and it's like, why I want this go. And I got kind of good at it by force. You know, you can jam it in there um, for a while, <laughs> but it was just terrible. It was just a horrible fit. And so talk therapy for me, some experiences at a monastery and other places that led me into this realization to move off of the competitive path and onto the creative path. And so I mentioned that because story is important, but also Jordan Peterson is, uh, he's a guy who does a lot of thinking and he says, creatives never fit into systems because systems are not designed for creativity. And that's what you were running into as a copywriter. It wasn't like you were a bad person or wanted to steal from the company. It was that systems say, swim in this lane. And that's what we want you to do. And, uh, you know, and then the, the output or the product comes out of that. Yeah. I look at my, my how my mental health journey has tracked with my entrepreneurship journey. Mm. And I think that there were times when I worked at a, so creativity has always been a wonderful outlet for me, like drawing or writing or playing music, like all of these different mediums of art had been coping mechanisms for me my entire life. So when you work in a creative agency, mm. in a creative role, and you are told by your higher up that you cannot express your creativity in these certain ways, it subconsciously reads as, I can't utilize the coping mechanisms that benefit me the most. I can only utilize the ones that line up exactly with my role. So moving into entrepreneurship, living with mental illness and symptoms, I realized that the the sort of creative whack-a-mole you have to hit with like, oh, I have to design a brochure and then I have to work on web copy and then I have to think of a marketing campaign and then I have to work on brand voice. And like the fact that you get to task switch between things that are effectively coping mechanisms for a creative person. I'm not saying building a business hasn't come with a lot of stress and challenges, but I'm saying the freedom, the artistic liberty that I get to exercise as an entrepreneur has actually been really cathartic for me. Yeah, I watched an interview with the, I think it was the CEO of NVIDIA. And he said, he was asked like, what would you do if you could start all over again? And what business would you start? And he said, I would not do it. He's like, that was like a, and he's, you know, tremendously successful company in a lot of metrics. And he said, absolutely no. In front of his other co-founder, I think. and. um 
And to think that like, I've lived agency life too. And to be in a creative agency, I thought, oh, this is going to be like really creative. And it's, again, it was like, why don't you make some more cold calls to people that might want to <laughs> give us money? And it's like, oh, but now I do more sales than ever before, but I also get to blend it. I'm also somebody who I think would, would have those coping mechanisms of video and art and music. I was in choir as a kid and um, always doodling in class and just, it was like, it was coming out of me and, and there's a part of that that's important to watch. I mean, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, just do what your hand finds to do, you know, and do it with all of your might and all of your strength. And that's the advice I would give to a young person is a lot of the game is showing up and knowing yourself. So as soon as you can figure out if you want to have a nine to five job as an architect, you should do that. And until then, you should work on looking inside yourself and figuring out who you are, not fooling yourself. This is what I would tell myself, of course, not fool myself. And um, and then if you have to be an actor, go be an actor. If you can do anything else, do <laughs> anything else, you know, but. And then something yeah. that I'm coming up against in my own life right now is reconsidering what it means to be an artist or or a musician or a basketball player like i was talking to um my nephew and he's played around with drums a little bit with um keyboard a little bit and he's tried singing a little bit and he's he's really young he's like 10 years old 11 years old and um he Oh, and he draws too. And he said, he would say things like, I'm not an artist or I'm not a basketball player or mm -hmm. I'm not a drummer. And I would just hear those things and think like, what are you talking about? How do you define an artist? Someone who makes art? How do you define a basketball player? Someone who plays basketball? And yeah. then I think, oh no, I like looked at myself and thought like, how many times have I looked at myself and said, well, I'm not really, uh, I'm not really a musician because I've only been doing music for 16 years and there's other people who've been doing it for 60 years. And you, you learn that like our definitions of being a creative or an entrepreneur or a, an artist, we allow industry to pollute them and rob us of our identity, which is our identity is like in, at least in part, someone who makes art or someone who plays basketball. And I, I want to get better on embracing that in my own life too. That's great. Yeah, we're we're uh we're outsourcing who gets to define us and how they define us and when that gets defined. So maybe your nephew is saying, oh, "I'm not really an artist because other people don't call me an artist." And that's mm. very different than us saying, "I'm an artist because I actually I get up and I create art most every day that I would define as art and and there you have it and I'm I that's part of what's baked into my soul and myself and and we can be more things than one also i mean we're not you know part of what we do it's like well i don't know if even that defines us as identity or but those things that are core you know and it's funny when it's funny how your artwork can inform you like this conversation right now is informed by me when my daughter came into the world eight or nine years ago making the dumbest videos you've ever seen in your life. They're dumb. And they're, they taught me how to edit video on my own. So 
to home roll this podcast and to do most of the post-production. At some point, I need to outsource it. And I'm talking with people right now because the lighting needs to be better. And it, But it doesn't really matter because um, those those things we did early on, sometimes they get into the mud of our life and they grow in ways that we can't predict how they'll turn out. Yeah, the thing you said about <clears throat> knowing yourself is really interesting too because a lot of people ask me about recovery and they're like, what has worked for you? Why is your life different now than it used to be? And I tell them some things that they already know. Like I say, medication helped me, therapy helped me, journaling helped me, exercise helped me, like things that they hear a lot. And they're like, mm. yeah, I figure that would help me. But one of the things that actually helped me is reducing the dissonance between who I have to pretend to be in my life and who I actually am. Because before, a big, I don't know if you've experienced this, but a big um, portion of my time and energy when I was really not mentally well was used up in pretending that I was doing okay. So if you look at my whole tank of gas, I'm using almost all the way to E to just look normal. Like I figured uh, if I trim my beard and I iron my t-shirts, then I'll look put together enough that nobody bothers me and asks if I'm okay. And then not only do I feel like I don't have to do the work of getting better until later, but also I don't even have enough juice at the end of the day to do the work because I've been pretending. So the more I get to know about myself, the more I get to actively reduce the dissonance in my professional and personal life between who I know myself to be and who I think I have to pretend to be. So once you like start trending towards authenticity in all areas of your life, you find you have more and more bandwidth left to do the important work of getting healthier. Jeez. Yes. What a point. I can't say I'm there yet, but I can say that the opportunity cost of all the energy that goes into being somebody else besides sort of who you are as a person who's um, doing their best not to hurt other people and caring for themselves, you know, caring for yourself in the community in that context. Um, the amount of bandwidth or energy that you have left to put into work is tremendous. Uh, and even if the work is garbage to begin with, or would be considered, let's go back to that idea of who defines garbage. Uh, because <laughs> I look, I look back at my marketing from four years ago and I think who in their right mind allowed me to say pink Argyle socks was a good brand move as like the entire identity for our campaign for this, this conference we do. But I was very confident in it. 99 creative agencies would have shot that down out of 99 creative agencies. But <laughs> out I of was 99, not out of 100. <laughs> not even out of 100. No. The only <laughs> person who was like, yeah, this seems good is me. And it's okay. Because that led me to three years ago when I looked back and I thought, ooh, that was really hard to look at. Let's do better. And there are, there are different, diff I'm sure there's faster ways to get it done. Um, but putting out a minimally viable product or a shitty first draft, you know, which we could consider that it actually worked well enough. And then we can improve them from the baseline. 
Yeah, sometimes I think, on one hand, I totally agree with the NVIDIA guy. Like, if I had known what it would cost me, I wouldn't have done it. But mm. now, I love that I get to do it, and mm. I'm so glad that I went through it. But it's kind of like sometimes you can only make that bet if you do the imperfect thing, and there's like an ignorance is bliss. I was yeah. talking to a buddy of mine who literally works. I'm not joking. He invents ways to reutilize waste proteins in food processing plants oh, so wow. he it, it's like and i'm talking this kid is in his 20s and is like a, such a next level super genius that sometimes it's difficult to talk to him so he's doing mm -hmm. like one of the most mind-blowing things in like he i think he has like a bio chem engineering background and he's like re i mean it's truly mind-blowing what he's doing you can tell by how poorly i'm describing what he does and i was talking to him and he said i think part of the reason why i launched what i launched is because i had this ignorance around what it would cost me and how big the problem was mm -hmm. And I thought, well, why hasn't anybody done anything about this? Which is like 99% of people who start things are like, how come no one's done this? And then we don't critically think through all of the wonderful reasons to not start the thing, um, of which there are many. And I think some of that, it's weird how we have like this sense of, especially when it comes to mental health, we have this sense of, or at least I did, I had a sense of certainty that I could only get this much better or not at all i was like my my chart of my mental wellness could either go up slightly it could stay the same or it could go way down and there's no bottom to how low it can go but there's a ceiling and i'm basically almost there i had a certainty about my limitations but then when it came to business i was like who knows it could be a huge thing. It was like, where's that same certainty? Like, why am I like, sky's the limit if I start something, but then with my own health, I impose these self limitations with a sense of certainty that's just as ill-informed as saying, if I start a company, it'll be worth a billion dollars. Like you and I don't know that, you know? Mm. Yeah. You, that's so let's see. So you, so you sort of have, or when you started, you had this sky's the limit, uh, asymmetrical upside to what you were doing. Like, you know, I can, there's some problems I'm solving, going to do it in huge ways. Don't see a lot of impossibility ahead of us. But then in your, in your mental health journey, it was the opposite. It was like, oh, maybe fractional marginal wins, uh, asymmetrical downside, certainly, you know, you you lose your job, you lose your family, things spiral down, down hard on, on a logarithmic scale. Um, but going up was sort of a, a perception, like it's just kind of baby stairs, baby steps. I think that's cultural. Like if you think it's a marketing issue, if you think about the stories of entrepreneurs, the most publicized stories are the ones where someone came up with an idea and then it blew up hockey stick curve. And now they're on the cover of Forbes. You can throw a rock and hit a story like that. Mm. However, there are maybe one fiftieth of as many stories of people succeeding in their mental and emotional wellness journey in that way. 
And instead, there's you can throw a rock and hit a story of someone who spiraled and hit rock bottom in their mental and emotional health. So there's it's the concentration of lookalike stories in entrepreneurship and your personal mental wellness journey that are so mismatched that you have this skewed data set that you're pulling from and then yeah. projecting on your own life. Yeah. Because you can also, you can also throw a rock and not very far. Like you could just throw a rock just as far as your arm could throw and you could hit somebody who started the business and failed. Right. I mean, you, you talk a lot about, Oh, and I would love for you to talk about this. This was from a previous conversation, sort of the idea of three years and one day in terms of the birth of a company um, but we don't tell those stories. So that's all the untold stories. And it's the same in hospitals. Like we, we hear the survival rate. We don't really have a full picture of like the, the non-survival rate, let's call it based on, based on disease or other factors, but we don't get the stories in media or on television of, uh, of, I got, I kind of got better or I improved or I'm making massive strides that have sort of left it behind. And that's, yeah, that is part of a residue we have around. Uh, I mean, it's such a complicated topic that I can't, I'm not going to like, I, I can't say I can even encapsulate it, but um, the opportunity for us to, like Jung says, look inside and awake instead of look outside and dream. The, the one who looks inside awakes. And then if you start operating from working from the core and making incremental challenge, it, changes and improvements that those concentric circles around the growth we have those are that is logarithmic growth you know that is the fibonacci kind of growth that we actually strive for but we don't get those stories yeah i also find it interesting that like if someone says oh i went from zero to a million in my business and i'm just using that as an example um some type of success in entrepreneurship, we say, congratulations, how'd you do it? But then if someone, check this out, and I've experienced this firsthand, if someone gets better in their personal wellness journey, people say, well, they're probably faking it. Hmm. They're like, well, yeah, they, they're really, but I knew them before. I know how they really are. And it's like, we don't even buy change when it's presented to us. We say, well, I knew that guy six years ago and that, and that guy's a mess. I can't believe he's trying to make it look like he's better. Like, is it, is it more unbelievable that over six years of treatment, this guy's healthier than he used to be than some guy inventing something in his bedroom and going on the Forbes list? Like, no, it's actually way more believable that the guy who was in treatment for six years got better. But the way that we interpret these stories is like so covered with internal bias, you know? Yeah. Internal bias and a, a reticence to change. You know, it's like they, it's like the wheel is still spinning on this story that you were living six years ago and was, and was true then. And, and we don't want to let go of those stories or think that people change. That's that's like one of those root questions, you know, like, is it love or money? Is it, is it beauty or science? Like, is, do people change or do they not change? And once we have a, somebody tagged or flagged as like this person does X in the dossier that we don't change that very often. I picture it. So I've never played Dungeons and Dragons. 
so I'm probably not going to make any sense by trying to use this analogy. No, I can't wait because I haven't either, but where are you going to run with this, wherever okay. it goes? So in Dungeons & Dragons, from my understanding, you pick somebody, you pick a player, uh, like an archetype. You're like, I'm okay. a wizard or I'm a mage or a healer or whatever. And then you play as that character until you die in the game. Like you don't just like, at least to my knowledge, wow, I'm going to get lit up in the D&D community right now for messing with the rules and misrepresenting the game but and it's a huge segment of our of our audience is D yeah, players. yeah it's like 95 percent of <laughs> listeners of the podcast um from my understanding you pick a a player like an archetype and then you run as that person the entire time and then you die <laughs> and i think that's what we think of ourselves in real life is like i was born and just as real for me i was born into an abusive household, low income, drugs and alcohol, always around, um, not a safe environment. And I'm hallucinating and self-harming and having all of these serious mental health challenges, making attempts on my own life. And I think what we think is that's my character, dude. I got stuck with this character and I have to play this character until I die. Now, what's interesting about the D and D analogy, and I'm going off the top of my head right now. So if it doesn't make sense, I trust you and your editors to, to chop it in a way that makes you sound like a genius. Yes. But from what I understand, if your character dies in D and D, you get to pick a new character. And I mean, you like, if I'm playing D and D with a group of friends over the course of a year and a half and nine months in my character dies, I don't get kicked out of my friend group. I get to choose a new character and continue playing the game. And I like to think that's what happened in my life. And that's what all of us are capable of. Like the character that you had can die and you can get to choose a new character without having to leave the game. Mm. I love that. I will fact check it later. Please. Maybe force myself to play Dungeons and Dragons because I don't understand the cultural uh, tidal wave that was D&D for a while and maybe still exists. But what a fascinating metaphor and example of how we can. Uh, it, uh, that's very spiritual, a very spiritual story, how uh, different characters get torn up, torn to pieces and are resurrected or find some kind of second life and are very different than uh, the previous iteration. And why isn't that more of a model compared to, well, these are, these are the cards you were dealt, you know, uh, to use a game board analogy. Um, this, you just have to play what you, what you was handed to you. And it's actually, no, I can actually, I can actually die. And, um, I can't source the quote, but it's like, you kind of have to die a few times before you like figure out how to live. Some people say, and it's like a popular thing, but it's kind of true. Like you kind of, you kind of don't know what you've got till it's gone, but you get, you might get another chance if you're lucky. Yeah. I think one interesting thing about recovery is that sometimes you feel like a, a new and improved version of your old self. And you have these like very present memories of how things used to be. And then other times you feel like your old 
like pre-recovery self is like a complete stranger where you like, I have nothing in common with that person. I don't remember anything about what their, their life experience was like, or how they thought about things, or I'm just so different. Like I literally think of old Johnny as like somebody else. And, and then I got to come in when he checked out and mm. we don't communicate. So sometimes there's stuff that he experienced where I'm like, yeah, I wish I could ask him, but he's not around anymore. So I'll just have to, you know, it's, it's not always one or the other, but I find that more and more as I get healthier, I feel more and more like a brand new person and less and less like a cobbled together version of an old person that kind of got wounded along the way. I feel, I feel I feel less like a person that changed and more like in Fresh Prince when like halfway through the series, there's a new actress for Aunt Viv and everyone's like, uh, are we not going <laughs> to talk about the fact that that's a totally different person? <laughs> and like nobody, it's just this thing where everyone kind of accepts, yeah, that's just a brand new person. And I feel that that's what happened. Like I'm a brand new person and someone gave me, oh, and your name is Johnny Crowder and you have a bunch of tattoos and this is how, th this is the life that you're inheriting. And I'm like, oh. These are the archetypes, right? So when we look at archetypes, I mean, the first three that come to mind are um, Pinocchio, you know, turns from a, like, technically you could look at him from a distance in a fog and say, oh, there's Pinocchio. Um but total transformation from wooden marionette to human. Um, Little Mermaid, you know, um, the, was a fish human and turns into a person with legs. And maybe one of the strongest is um, Beauty and the Beast, you know, where uh, this beast person finds love and love transforms him into a prince. Maybe the prince he was. Uh, kiss the frog. I mean, it's endless. And the mm -hmm. fairy tales are like the oldest, the oldest stories that exist for the reason that they are worthwhile. And we write them off as children's fairy tales like, oh, that's impossible. When like hiding in plain sight is the secret to life, which is uh, what, what, let, yeah, hmm. I, I, I want to take this down like such an Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but we are going to do a, a second episode on this. But, it, uh, well, I'm just driving toward love. Like, uh, oftentimes those stories have that component. Like, is there was there a, a love for yourself or a, a somebody else that came into your life? And this is getting really personal, so feel free to opt out. But, like, is that a component of your fairy tale? For sure. I, um, so there are two big factors to this that I think aren't so dissimilar. One is I grew up with no, um, I, I was not convinced that God was real. <laughs> and if God was real, hypothetically, he's the worst because look at everything happening in my life. Like what kind of good God would have a teenager hallucinating and self-harming. Like it was just torture, just abject torture. Yeah. So I thought either God's not real or he is real and he's negligent mm -hmm. or he is real and he's evil. He's like punishing me for something. I have no idea what I did. Solid logic. So 
I had zero love for God. And that is, we could do a whole separate conversation about this. Um, this has been one of the most transformative things that helped me participate in my recovery more. It helped me treat other people differently. And also very importantly, the whole premise of the Jesus story is that God loved us first. Like we weren't just magically great. And then God was like, I'm going to reward how great you are. It was like, God loved us. And that helped me start building a love for myself that I never had and was never modeled for me. I wasn't around people who loved themselves and I wasn't, it was going to sound sharp, but I wasn't around a lot of people who loved me. So I didn't have great examples. And when I started realizing that God loved me, it made it a more actionable premise that I could love myself. Mm -hmm. And as that love for myself, and it, it, before that, it was disdain. It was not indifference. It was like I despise, I blamed myself for all of the challenges that I was going through. Mm -hmm. I was, have you ever seen, um, there's this uh, meme floating around that's like, uh, says therapist. And then it's like, you should speak to yourself more kindly. And then my brain, yeah, speak to yourself more kindly, idiot. <laughs> and that's what was happening was even as I was working to become healthier, I was so sharp and pointed and bitter towards myself for not progressing more quickly and for having these challenges in the first place. So I think mm. feeling loved by God and learning to love God helped me love myself and feel loved by myself. And that's something I work on every single day. But I do think love is an element, although I've been single for most of my life. So I don't think it would be fair to say that um, the love in my life that has been transformative has always been the sort of uh, Disney, like there's this beautiful girl and I like whisk her off her feet and we go for a picnic. No, a lot of this stuff has been like, me spending time with myself or reading or thinking or asking other people who are further along than me in their recovery and their faith journey for their input to unravel the spite that I felt towards myself and others. And underneath that, how to repair the sense of love that would drive me to participate in my own mm -hmm. recovery. Cause I felt like I deserved to feel better. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, the, those stories, it, and we get tricked into this. We get tricked into thinking that love means, uh, we've found some other person, um, love and the, the meaning of those stories. It just struck me when you were talking might mean something similar to Carl Jung's idea of, you know, a a let's just say a typical gender male having an anima within him, which is a counterpart female character and that a, a gender female may have an animus, uh, a, a male character within her that is like full completion and full love of yourself and that we've rejected that counterpart to ourself. And so your journey of love, uh, realizing that a God has done the worst thing 
most painful thing possible, which is to send your son away to die and has a love that endures endlessly forever for you first. Uh, and then for us to find a completion within ourselves of this fairy tale, which is like, oh, I'm actually a completely different person than I was before and a whole person. And, um, and then can love other people like it radiates out from that. Um, that's maybe part of that lesson that I'm learning right now today. <laughs> Dude, even, I mean, anyone listening who has been through trauma therapy, you've probably heard of the Richards trauma process, which mm -hmm. I had to go to go through for abuse. And it was, I'm telling you, first of all, it's long. It's long. It's not like you do a session and then you're done. Dude, it's a whole, it's like a, it is not a one and done thing. And also it's so extraordinarily challenging. Like one of the, one of the hardest things I ever did in therapy was this process, but it allowed me to importantly back to your love point. It allowed me to love and feel compassion for this child of myself. Like, cause like I said, I feel different than my younger self. I feel like a totally separate person. It doesn't feel like me loving myself. It feels like me loving this scared little child that was experiencing so many awful things that he didn't bring on. Like what's, what's a six year old going to do to cause that type of thing to himself? You know, I looked, I, the Richard's trauma process forced me to look at my younger self as a totally separate person with compassion. The way if you found out that some random six-year-old you're sitting next to on the bus was experiencing what I was experiencing at six years old, you would hug them. You would pray for them. You'd be like, how can I get you to safety? What can I do? And I had, I had looked at my younger self as like, clearly there had been something I had done to, sure. to deserve what I went through in yeah. it. That was a big thing in allowing me to love myself was viewing my younger self with compassion and being like, Oh dude, it's not fair. What's happening to you. And I'm so sorry that it is. And I had never said that to myself, you know, mm -hmm. that's wonderful. Um, I know we're coming up on time. That reminds me of a, a Ukrainian artist who was featured at uh, burning man uh, a couple of few years ago. And it was like two giant wire frames of what looked like adults facing away from each other. And you could see through them and on both of them, inside both of them, there were these two children, maybe toddler age, kind of trying to reach out through the other one, but the structure of the man or the structure of the adult, rather, I should say, um, for, forbade them from doing that. You know, it kind of was a cage. And uh, so for you to have old Johnny and, and uh, child Johnny and uh, that these, you can identify with them and give them sympathy and love across time is healing. It was just beautiful. Um, Thank you for being on. Um, you know, normally we do this like virtual hug, shameless plug thing. We just didn't need those tropes. Not that we've always needed them, but um, I just, I just wanted to have this conversation with you. I've just so enjoyed it and val I've, it's, it's enriching to me. So thanks for being on. Yeah. I feel like I learned enough in this conversation to write a book and I will probably do that. <laughs> so thank you. I'll co-author it with you. I have that dream someday. Yeah. Heck let's yeah. create more things. Thank you, Johnny. Um, tell us quickly, where, where do people find you for your keynote and cope notes and things like that? Yes. To, to try cope notes for free. Oh, cope notes. Uh, we send randomly timed text messages 
that interrupt negative thought patterns and train your brain to think healthier thoughts. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can try it for free at copenotes.com or get a subscription for your friend or family member or your nonprofit or your school district or your company, whatever. Um, that's copenotes.com. And then if you want to book me as a speaker, I can come to you. Um, that website is johnnycrowder.com. Pretty easy to remember. And then um, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. I sometimes use Facebook uh, and Instagram. I'm on there sometimes as well. So LinkedIn is Johnny Crowder. Facebook is Johnny Crowder. And then Instagram is Johnny Crowder loves you because I do. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. We'll put those links in the notes too. Thank you, Johnny. Of course, bro. This was awesome. It was. Have a good one. Talk to you soon. Adios. Bye. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.